My life is not my own. I will follow God no matter what the cost. I believe my life is not my own are six words that can change yours and my life forever. I'll say that several more times today because I want you to hear that. You know, there's a great spiritual search going on in this world today. Many of us probably ponder the thought of people looking for that spiritual answer and the, the, the absolute atrocities of all the spiritual garbage that shows up in Hollywood and all those sort of things that didn't anything to do with God. But I want you to know the greatest spiritual search today is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is searching spiritually for those people that will follow him, truly follow Jesus Christ. What does it mean to follow him? I believe it means to follow him with reckless abandon. Whatever it is, God, I'll do it. It doesn't make any sense to me, God, but you're telling me to do it, I'm going to do it. Think about Abraham, think about Moses, all those that followed God and didn't question where or why. I believe it takes courage to follow God today, too. We're living in a society that wants to paint an ugly picture of Christians. You know, so what? You know, I'm not worried about that as much as I am about disappointing God Almighty. God is looking for fully devoted people, sold out to him. You think about Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't want to go to that cross. Remember he said, uh, God, if there's a possibility of this cup passing from me, please let it pass. But then he immediately said, not my will, but your will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a great theologian from the last century, said this. He said, when Christ calls someone, he bids them to come and die. I love that. When Christ calls somebody, he bids them to come and to die. Have you ever really seriously sat down and spent some time pondering following Jesus? You know, we hear about it in Sunday school. We hear about it in Bible studies. We hear it in the sanctuary here. But have you ever really sat down and thought, what does that make? What does that entail? What does that mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean to have a relationship with Jesus Christ that you're so close that everywhere you go, he's with you? And everywhere he goes, you're with him. Do we honestly stop and ask ourselves, what am I giving for the cause of Christ? Am I truly sacrificing anything of me for him? All throughout the history of the Christian faith, all throughout the Bible, we see where people gave their lives for the cause of Christ. All the apostles but one gave their lives for it. They were martyrs for the cause of faith. They were brutalized, and then they were tortured, and then they were killed. What does it really mean to follow Jesus Christ? What does it mean that my life is not my own? I can tell you this. I was baptized when I was 11 years old. And I was a good kid, grew up in a Christian family. I was blessed with Christian parents. And I remember seeing them go to church and study the Bible. And, and uh, I, I had a great experience with Jesus Christ when I got saved. And I'll tell you this is too. When I was 17 years old, I led the first person to the Lord. There's a fellow by the name of Martin Sapodnico. He was a Jewish fellow. He was a neighbor down the street. We rode the same bus and became friends. And I just realized he was Jewish and he wasn't Christian, so I began working on him. It took me a better part of my senior year to do it. But uh, God finally did it. God opened his heart. He took a lot of rebuke from his parents as well, and I was not one of his parents' favorite folks for doing that, for telling him about Jesus Christ. But I went to college, went to the Marines, went to the restaurant business, and I, I want to confess to you this morning. On my best day, with the wind behind my back, I was probably just a marginal Christian. I knew Jesus Christ. If you asked me, you could, oh, yeah, absolutely, I know Jesus Christ. But there was no evidence in my life for the most part. I was probably a little more kinder of compassion than some people, but a lot of times not. But I was a marginal Christian. I went through the motions. There was nothing about me, I don't think, that surrendered to Jesus Christ, except to acknowledge that he's my Savior. But you wouldn't know it to look at me. I missed life with Jesus Christ for a lot of years because I was selfish, I was self-centered, 
I was focused on myself. You know, I shared with most of you about losing that corporation a number of years ago, and that brought me back to my knees. I mean, I realized in the midst of that I'd been missing life. And it was because of Jesus Christ that I kind of climbed out of that little pit I dug for myself in that pity party, and God set my feet on solid rock. But you know what I did in the midst of all that? Surrender to Him. I got to a point in my life when I realized the only thing that's going to get me out of this little mess I'm in right now is God. I want you to think about this. You've probably had experiences in your life as well when you've had some tragedy happen or you have a health issue and you realize the doctor is saying, I don't know if there's that much we can do about it, maybe for you or for a loved one. And all of a sudden, you know what you do? You surrender everything to God. Why? Because you realize he's the only one that can fix this situation you're in. He can, he's the only one that can help your loved one that's in the situation. He's the only one that can lead you to where you need to go. And all of a sudden, we surrender for just that moment. Do you know what happens sometimes when you have those moments? As soon as the moments pass and yet God shows up and shows you a miracle, kind of go back to our old ways again. I've seen man after man after man, and some women as well, mostly us men, kind of hard-headed, a lot of friends, a lot of people I've served with, have that brutal moment in their life and all of a sudden they've surrendered everything. God, I can't do it. I mean, it's like the light bulb goes off. It's like they get hit by lightning and they realize, man, I've been missing life. The question for you and I, why does it take some brutal, horrible, hard experience to get our attention for God? Why do we need to be shaken up to a point where we're almost dying and all of a sudden, okay, I need God now? I want you to know, without all that happening, God desires for you to surrender your life to Him today. He wants you to be His. God brought me back to my knees. These are six words that I believe that can change your life. My life is not my own. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, if you'll turn to Philippians chapter 1. As you find your way there, stand with me, if you will, out of reverence respect to the reading of God's holy word. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from jail, and the very first sentence speaks to that. Verse 19, it says, For I know that this, this being in jail, will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to explain this, According to my earnest expectations and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness and always, so now as Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's like Abby shared about Mihai. That, you know, when we surrender everything to Jesus Christ, we've done the best thing we can ever do. And life, wherever it takes us, is just filled with joy and glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time together in your holy word. Father, I pray right now that you'd speak to each one of our spirits, beginning with me. Speak to our hearts, Father, and to our mind this day, Father, that we might leave here in just a few moments realizing there's things in my life I have not surrendered yet, and I surrender those things to you today, God. Father, I pray right now, Lord, that uh, your Holy Spirit, Father, would enlighten the Scripture today. Father, use me. I pray that I'd stay out of your way, Father. Forgive me my sins, Father. I pray that I'd be an empty vessel that you can speak through today. Father, we thank you now once again for this most precious time in your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Imagine if you were a slave. And more than that, maybe a slave back during the Roman Empire time. You know, slaves back then had a real attitude. They really did. You know what their attitude was? It's an attitude of obedience. Slaves obeyed, period. That's what they're called to do. Obey. Theologians would tell you today, too, that in the time of Jesus Christ in Rome, four out of ten persons there was a slave. 
they were slaves at all different levels. Just the common folks had slaves, but also the, the high and the mighty had slaves. Based on who your master was, it kind of indicated kind of lifestyle. Imagine this. Some millionaire there in Rome had a couple of slaves. They probably lived in nicer quarters. They probably ate a little better, and they were, they were subject to different nice things happening. They were still slaves, though. They were still called to be obedient. Think about the characteristics of a slave in the Roman era. First of all, slaves were bound to their masters with cords that were so strong that only death could separate that slave from the master. The slave served the master to utter disregard for their own life. It's not my will, but it's his will. They realized that. The slave's will was engulfed in the master's. The slave had no say. It was all about the master. I want you to think about this for just a second. In the Roman culture at that time, becoming a slave by choice to Jesus Christ was deciding to be somebody. Somebody decided to be a slave during the time of the Roman Empire to Jesus Christ. Voluntarily decided they want to be a slave to Jesus Christ was making a decision that I want to improve my life. I want to have a better life. I want to see someone great. Why? Because they realized who Jesus Christ was. They realized that he was God. If you're going to be a slave to someone, why not be a slave to God? We're slaves to all kinds of things here. Many of us mortgages or payments or paychecks or jobs or all the things that we're slaves to. You know, those things sometimes are necessary, but you know what? First and foremost, when we're slaves to God, it makes all that stuff kind of seem minimal. It doesn't really matter a whole lot, those things going on in our life. Because why? Because i got a God in heaven that's in charge. Jesus Christ became the history's first slave by choice. Think about this. Comes Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ, who, being in the form of God, talking about Jesus, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and becoming in and coming in likeness of man. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Jesus Christ was the first slave by choice. He did it, why? Because he loved his father. He did it because he realized that there was a mission for him that his father sent him on. He came to earth. The apostle Paul, remember him? He was heading as hard as he could in the wrong direction, seeking the praise and the appraisal of men, the acceptance of men. He had all the world could give him going for him. I mean, he had it made. That day on the Damascus Road, he came face to face with Jesus Christ and realized, I don't have it all. I want this Jesus. Remember what Paul said on that road after he realized he was talking to Jesus Christ? He said, what do you want me to do? Paul went from being a murderer of Christians, but also a man that realized how important he was and realized that he had it all, to saying, I have nothing. Nothing makes sense here except for God through Jesus Christ. And gave himself right then. Surrender right on that road to Damascus. It didn't take him years to figure it out. He came face to face with Jesus Christ and realized, I want this Jesus to be my Savior. The Greek word for slave in the New Testament is doulos. It's Greek. It occurs 141 times, and if you look at your New Testament today, it won't be in there 141 times. When the King James Version Bible was written back in the 1500s by King James himself, you know what? They were having a big struggle with slavery. You know that story? Brits wanted slavery out there, so they didn't want to use the slave name in the New Testament Bible, so they changed it to servant. You'll see slave a couple times there. But not 141 times, probably about 135 times, they substitute the word servant. They did not want to offend the readers. They didn't want to offend you and I. 
by using the word slave. That's just too drastic. That's too hard. Listen very carefully. I think that was a huge mistake. Probably one of the biggest weaknesses in the church today is the lack of total surrender. It's the lack of you and I not giving it all to Christ. You know, sometimes in our church membership, we're being a Christian, we kind of feel like we're going to a cafeteria someplace. And uh, I want some of that, I want some of that, but I don't want some of that. And so we kind of pick and choose. We kind of feel like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty committed though. There's a difference between commitment and surrender. Commitment means I still control it. When I surrender, when I became a bond slave of Jesus Christ, you know what? I lose all control. I give it all to him. I surrender everything. God, it's your will, not my will. God, it's your will, not my will. Jesus asks you and I for voluntary, total surrender. He's asking you voluntarily to become his slave. Why? Because he knows your life is going to be so much richer when you do that. If you have your Bibles, you told your Bibles out today. We're going to look at a couple of scriptures here because I want you to see these. Maybe even mark them that they might, uh, might come back and think about them. Turn with me, if you will, to Mark 8, verse 34. As you turn there, I want you to hear this very carefully. That the American church, the church of today, has created and accepted a very weak form of discipleship. We really have. We've accepted it as this is discipleship. As long as you come to church and go to Sunday school. We kind of think that's discipleship. You're being discipled. That's not God's definition of discipleship. Here's one of them right here. Mark 8, verse 34. It said, When he called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You ever ponder the thought why he puts desire, uh, the, deny yourself first? Because that's what gets in the way of the other two. You know, we can't pick up the cross. We can't follow him. If we haven't denied ourselves first. And that's what's wrong with the American church today. We have not denied ourselves. As long as church can fit into my schedule... As long as I get Wednesday nights in my schedule, as long as I get Sunday school, you know, staying Sunday morning for three hours just too much. I've heard all these things. Listen, it doesn't say here deny just a little bit. It says deny yourself totally. Surrender is what we're talking about. It goes on to say this in verse 35. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will will save it. What does that mean to, to lose my life? It means die to self. Give myself over to God. Let God be in control. It's no longer me, but God. Verse 36, For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Now look at 37. This is powerful. Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? You know what? America has given up their soul for so much less than God Almighty. We've given it up for sin. We've given it up for TV. We've given it up for sports. We've given it up for all kinds of things. It's amazing what we sell out for. Idol worship, I've said before, is probably one of the greatest sins of America today. We put everything in front of God a lot of times. Finally, verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Imagine for just a moment if you're a slave. I don't know if you've ever heard this concept before, but... uh, I know you've heard the thought of what it means. Consumption, assumption. I thought that's cool. Consumption, assumption. I want to share an illustration from the Civil War, first of all, and then I'm going to show you a biblical illustration of this. I think many of you know that you're students of history that Abraham Lincoln struggled big time with finding a commanding general that worked 
for the Union Army. The very first general he called and asked to be the general of his army would have been the best. It was Abraham Lincoln. I don't know if you knew that, but Abraham, I'm sorry, would have been Robert E. Lee. Abraham Lincoln asked Robert E. Lee to be his commanding general. Robert E. Lee didn't want to fight against his native home of Virginia, so he turned it down. Abraham, uh, Robert E. Lee was arguably one of the greatest generals ever to live. But Abraham Lincoln had four different generals leading his army during the Civil War. Winfield Scott, remember him? He was the first commanding general in the army for seven months. Then he called up a fellow by the name of George McClellan, and he was the general for one year and four months. And this guy, you may not have even heard of this guy, but a fellow by the name of Henry Halleck was the commanding general of the army for a year and eight months. The region never heard of him because he never had any significant battles or wins. He also, General Halleck, also ran the war from Washington, D.C. He had a nice office in Washington, D.C. That's kind of where he ran the war from. I was thinking about the communication back and forth, take a couple of days by pulling the express guy to get to him. So, but finally, Abraham Lincoln realized, I need a general that's going to go in there and be aggressive and do what he needs to do. So he called Ulysses S. Grant. I don't want to talk about those guys except for George McClellan for a minute. I want to share with you why he failed as a general. Lincoln chose him on November 1st. Imagine that, 1861. So we celebrate that anniversary day as well. General McClellan was a vision of health and strength. He was an incredibly well-built man. He was incredibly intelligent. He had a strong willpower. You know, he also was commented on many times that no officer ever looked better in the uniform. I mean, he was sharp. He, and he's a big man. He looked like the part. He looked like it. He was well-respected among his peers. He was educated in all the best military schools around the world. He'd gone to Britain and studied military tactics from the British there. This guy was, uh, Abraham Lincoln felt, knocking the ball out of the park. He was sure that this general was the right guy. He had amazing talent as well to take raw recruits and turn them into fierce fighters. I mean, the guy was just gifted. He built an army, George McClellan did, three times the size of the Confederate Army. I mean, it was huge. As you know, in battle, that uh, momentum and timing is huge as a, as a general. Unfortunately, McClellan was always a day late and a dollar short. He became more known for his inaction the greatest army, the greatest young general, but he had the wrong focus. He was serving the Union, but he felt like the army was his. And he'd engage in a few conflicts back out because it looked like he was going to have too many losses. And that's smart for a leader, but sometimes you just have to accept the losses to win the battle. He didn't win the battles. He didn't push hard enough. He forgot what the, what the army was for. And I want you to think about this. George McClellan had everything he needed, but he lost sight of what it was for. He had everything he needed, but lost sight of what it was for. Jesus taught the definition of greed. Bring it around to the Bible illustration here. This is where you're going to understand consumption assumption. Greed is the assumption that everything that is placed in our hands is for our consumption. Did you hear that? Greed is the assumption that everything that's placed in my hands is for me and my consumption. That's not the way God intended to be. If you have your Bibles with you, turn with me now to Luke 12. I want you to see this story too and maybe mark it in your Bible so you can go back and think about it. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Jesus is talking to a crowd of people. He's also teaching them. And so the verse picks up, Luke 12, verse 13, says this, Then one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, 
For one's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. Do you hear that? Beware of covetousness, for life's existence does not consist of abundance of things or possessions. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentiful. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have the room to store crops? Since I have no room to store crops. So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store my crops and all my goods. And I will say to you, my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You know, up to verse 19 there, it's kind of a good story. Guy's being smart about saving. Guy's being smart about investing and keeping his stuff so he can have a greater retirement or whatever it might be there he's looking at. Great story to them. I mean, it's almost the American success story to that point. But then look what Jesus Christ says in verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 20. But God said to him, Fool! Let me say that again. God said to him, Fool! This night your sorrow will be required of you. Then whose will these things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, this man that's being described here was a beautiful illustration of consumption assumption. He was assuming that everything that had been placed in his hands was entirely for his consumption. That's part of the American dream. And there's, there's some good parts about the American dream, but I want you to not miss this thought. The American dream and God's dream for your life are not the same, okay? There are differences there. God has a plan for your life. God has a vision for your life. God has incredible things he wants to do, supernatural things he wants to do in your life. And yet sometimes we hold on to the things that we want too much instead of letting God have them and see what he do with them. God has an incredible plan. Whenever we have more than we need, the natural assumption is that it's for my consumption. If we simply store up for ourselves, we're going to miss God. Why? Because God gave. God wants us to be transparent. God wants us to be a vessel that he can flow through with everything. My time, my talents, my heart, my prayers. He wants to flow through us. He wants to see how we might touch this world for him. As Americans, I believe we have everything we need, more than what we need. But many times we just lose sight of what it's for. Every Tuesday morning we have a staff meeting here with all of our folks. And uh, we take turns sharing a devotion this last Tuesday, Tracy Ball, my administrative assistant, shared a scripture from John 12. And I'm going to read that for you right now. But uh, she titled this, Buried or Planted. And it was profound. I'd never heard those two words used. It's, it's, it speaks to it. Obviously, I just never heard it that way. And uh, let me share with you John 12, 24 through 26. Jesus speaking again. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Buried or planted? It's very clear here that Jesus died so we could live. Now we need to die so we can serve him and that Jesus Christ might live inside us. You know, you can plant a seed. It's going to grow. But until that seed dies, it's not going to grow. You can hold the seed out here, and it's never going to be anything more than that seed. But when we plant it in the right soil, water and gives light, God touches it, it's going to grow it. It's the same with human beings. We can hold on to our life, and our life will still be the same. Or we can plant our life for the glory of God, and he's going to do great things. 
It all comes down to the point of dying. Am I willing to die to myself? And it's a struggle. It's not something you say, okay, that makes sense, Pastor. I'm going to do it today. You've got to get up tomorrow morning and die to yourself again. Say, God, it's not me today that lives, but you that lives in me. Help me to stay out of your way, God. I pray that all the time. Help me to stay out of your way, God. But we need to die to ourselves. Until that seed dies, all it's ever going to be is that seed. If I want to save my life, I must lose it. If I want to be lifted up, I must humble myself. If I want to be the greatest, I must be a servant. If I want to be first, I must be last. If I want to rule, I must serve. If I want to be strong, I must be weak. If I want to inherit the kingdom of God, I must be poor in spirit. If I want to reproduce my life and see fruit, I must die. Let me ask you this. You ever seen a little acorn crack a sidewalk? You ever see somebody maybe left an acorn or fell out of an oak tree and on a sidewalk and all of a sudden around that little, oak, little acorn, the sidewalk starts rising up and it's cracking and all falling apart? You ever seen that? I don't think we have, anyway. But I imagine many of you have seen an oak tree crack a sidewalk, right? Oak tree planted too close to the sidewalk, the roots going out, and all of a sudden the roots starts growing further and further, getting bigger and bigger, and all of a sudden the sidewalk gets lifted up and cracked and all these things. That acorn was planted and it began to grow. And it grew into a mighty oak that had incredible power. It had a beautiful stature. It made a difference for people around them with the shade it provided. All these things. It's the same with you and I. It's time for Christians in the Christian church to stop being acorns. And plant yourself. Die to yourself. That you might be, grow up and be that tall oak tree. And make a difference in this world. And be somebody that demonstrates power. And demonstrates God's love in this world. People will see him. People don't notice acorns, but they notice big oak trees, beautiful oak trees. You know, just like that oak tree, when we're planted, we die, and we begin to grow, we shake heaven and earth. We really do. We shake the sidewalks. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, family, we can live that obedient life or we can live a disobedient life. It's our choice. I want to share one thought in concluding here today. It's the last thought on the screens up here. Think outside the box. Think outside the box. You ever heard that story before? Or that thought, think outside the box. It's a well-worn phrase, but there's one problem with that phrase. You know what the problem is with that phrase, think outside the box? Our reference point is still the box. Think outside the box. Get outside the box over here, Pastor. Get over here. Move over this way. Get outside the box. My reference point is still the box. I'm always referencing back to that box. It's always there in my life. Listen very carefully. When you die to yourself, you know the only thing that's in you? Jesus Christ. You can still go through the motions of these things, but the only thing that really counts is Jesus Christ. I want you to think about Peter getting out of that boat that night and walking on the water. He stepped out of the boat, but that's what he wasn't doing. He wasn't trying to get out of the boat. He wasn't trying to do anything. He asked Jesus Christ, hey, Jesus Christ, ask me to come to you. Call me to you. He stepped over that water. You know what he's doing when he stepped in that water? The moment he got out of that boat and put his feet on that water, he surrendered himself to Holy Christ. Why? Because if he didn't, he's going to the bottom. 
He began walking towards Christ. Walking great on top of the water. Look at me, I'm walking on water. Had his focus on Jesus Christ. Had surrendered everything, realizing that's his salvation. Then he looked away. He got a little worried. What about the box again? The boat in the box and all the storms and all that stuff. Went back to the reference point. The box. What happened? He began sinking. When we surrender our lives to him, we surrender everything. We set our affections and our focus on Jesus Christ. That he might do all things through us. It's a brand new paradigm. It's a paradigm that's a little bit confusing sometimes. A little bit of probably anxiety involved in this, surrendering everything to Jesus Christ. You know what? You'll never live with more power, more confidence, more ability, more peace, more hope than when you surrender everything. You know, most of us are probably partway there. We've committed things. But you know, we haven't surrendered totally. The greatest thing that can happen in your life, in my life, the greatest thing that can happen in the life of this church is this body believer said, I'm surrendering all. That we'd be just like Paul. It's not I that live, but Christ that lives in me. I desire to see my life count for his cause, not my own. I'm not going to boast on anything besides a risen Savior. I'm boasting on Jesus Christ. We have an incredible opportunity to make Jesus Christ our reference point. No longer the box, but Jesus Christ.